Hey, Peoples for the People fans. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe or follow wherever you listen. And if you want to stay updated on new happenings as I uncover things, go over to Twitter and give me a follow, at AlexPeebles93. That's where you can find information about new episodes coming out and where you'll see exactly what I've dug up in the process of creating each episode. And if you have any questions for me about the show, feel free to tweet at me, and I'll do my best to get back at you. This podcast has language that might be offensive to some. It was April 3rd, 1994, a snowy Easter Sunday just before 8 in the morning when Heidi made her last transaction at the D&W convenience store in Mexico, where she worked, and then disappeared. But the big question remains tonight, where is Heidi Allen? They said they grabbed her from behind the counter and dragged her out the door and threw her in the back of Michael Bohr's van. I didn't know Michael Bohr had a white van. Well, it's not even, they didn't even bring her in the house. They didn't send the van. What do you think happened to Heidi? What was done with her body? He laid down in two areas, which was a sign. It's an indication that there were human remains. All I know is they ended up chopping her up. If they would have put that van on my trailer and Heidi would have been in that van, that's where it would have went, right to the shredder. I've been in this from day one. There's nothing else I can say. This is the story of Heidi Allen, the story of a small-town kidnapping where corruption got in the way of justice. The truth is finally coming out. Thank you, Wayne. 21 years after Heidi Allen vanished from her job at an Oswego County convenience store, the only man ever convicted in her kidnapping continues to fight for his freedom. And the hearing that could win Gary Thibodeau a new trial picks up once again tomorrow after it was on a break for the last week. CBS 5's Sarah Beth Ackerman. In the last episode, Michael Bohr took the stand with a briefcase. But without knowing what was in it, the prosecution and Judge King decided its contents were irrelevant to Heidi Allen's kidnapping. Thus, they prevented him from opening it and showing the court exactly what he brought to testify. We also learned that Bohr had an emotional breakdown on the stand after he was asked about driving by the Where's Heidi sign. During the hearing, former District Attorney Donald Dodd testified for the prosecution. We heard Dodd admit that had he and investigators known about Bohr's past in 1994, when Heidi first went missing, it would have been significant to the case. Dodd also said that Heidi gave information to police at least once. I have a direct recollection that Heidi Allen provided confidential information in 1991 to, I believe it was investigator and investigator Van Patten. Despite the existence of a file clearly indicating that Heidi was a confidential informant, or CI for short, Sheriff Mo Todd and the Sheriff's Office have always maintained that Heidi was never used and was never truly an informant. And even though Dodd admitted Heidi had given information to police, he immediately contradicted himself during his testimony. This is Peebles for the People, and I'm 
Alex Peebles. I don't know what the world's been missing, but I think we need a miracle. I'm tired of being held down. And I'm tired of watching these people die. Before we jump into Donald Dodd's testimony further, Let's quickly go over how an evidentiary hearing like this one typically works. Gary Thibodeau's defense team, led by my mother, Lisa Peebles, had to prove that had the newly discovered evidence been presented in Gary's original trial, it likely would have changed the verdict. But the way this hearing works is the judge is the person who ultimately decides whether the defense meets its burden, which means the judge in this case, Judge Daniel King had the sole discretion on what testimony or what evidence to consider. King had the power to let whatever he wanted into evidence because at the end of the day, he was the one making the decision. There was no jury. What that means is, he could reject or sustain any objection he wanted. For example, last episode, the prosecution objected to moving Bohr's handwritten notes about Heidi's kidnapping into evidence based on their relevance. Well, at the end of the day, King had the power to overrule that objection if he thought the notes were relevant. But, as you probably recall, he decided they weren't. On the flip side of that, the prosecution moved a magazine subscription from 1995 a year after Heidi's kidnapping, into evidence as they tried to disprove the well-established fact that Jennifer Westcott lived on Rice Road in 1994. Lisa Peebles objected to the relevance of this Santa's Edition catalog, yet King decided that this subscription was relevant. The point that I'm trying to make is that King had the power to allow whatever he wanted into evidence and on the record. King had the opportunity to hear all of the evidence brought by the defense, but he chose not to. King could have let everything in and decided later what would be admissible in a jury trial and whether it was relevant. Without even knowing the contents of Bohr's investigative notes, he decided they weren't relevant, and that seemed to mark a common theme for the hearing. At the end of the last episode, we heard Dodd say that knowing about Bohr's violent past toward women would have been important. Well, I'm asking if you knew that Michael Bohr had been previously convicted of abducting a 21-year-old female by grabbing her from behind and pushing her in a car while hitting her with another man in the car, would that have been significant to you? Associated with a construct of the investigation of the abduction of Heidi Allen? Yes. Absolutely, to the extent that uh, any suspect, any individual, as part of the investigation. Obviously, knowing that Bohr had a criminal history that included kidnapping a woman would be significant. After all, he had become a suspect in Heidi's kidnapping. And the FBI profile stated that the offender would likely show a pattern of this type of criminal behavior. The Thibodeau brothers certainly didn't fit the FBI profile, but Bohr did. It seemed like the FBI profiler Clint Van Zant hit the nail directly on the head. But Judge King 
didn't believe that Bohr's criminal past was significant. In fact, King blocked Lisa Peebles' request to have Catherine Schmidt, the victim of Bohr's kidnapping in Wisconsin, testify at the hearing. She said she would remember the night Bohr kidnapped her until the day she died. This all played out in court on the record. Oakes made his opposition to letting Schmidt testify very clear. Oaks, based upon the affidavit, the felony complaint that was submitted from the victim, it doesn't appear that that crime is factually similar to this present offense that we're that subject of this hearing. Yes, in both cases, a young woman was abducted or attempted to be abducted, but that's really where the similarities end. So, Oaks argued the similarities end with a young woman being abducted. That may be the most relevant similarity there could be, especially when we're talking about a suspect in Heidi's kidnapping already having a documented kidnapping on his record. A suspect who was obsessed with Heidi's disappearance, who was keeping detailed notes of his own investigation, and made admissions to at least two people. Here's Lisa Peebles' response to Oaks. Quote, the complaint that Mr. Oaks has read does not do justice to the attack on Catherine Schmidt by Mr. Bohr. Now, they've went to great lengths to suggest that Mr. Bohr is some kind of crazy lunatic who simply has some bizarre interest in the Heidi Allen case, where he carries around all of this information, does an investigation on his own, injects himself into the investigation, and somehow he has nothing to do with this case and wasn't responsible at all, when in fact, he was breaking down on the stand, and he was actually combative in connection with some of the questions I was asking him. And judge, if Catherine Schmidt is permitted to testify, she will in fact establish a common scheme or plan. Yes, she was not employed at a DNW convenience store. She was a female between the ages of 18 and 21. She had a similar appearance as Heidi Allen. He stalked her, followed her with his lights off from her place of employment, blocked her into her spot in her apartment complex. He physically approached her and suggested that he, excuse me, under a ruse that he needed some assistance. He grabs her from behind, puts his hand over her mouth, John Bohr gets out of the car, gets to the driver's side, opens the passenger door, but for the fact that they were in a Mustang which she was able to grab onto the roof of the car, she was in that car. He was punching her in the face. She was full of blood. Her skirt was ripped. She was lucky to escape with her life. And the only reason she did escape is because the vehicle wasn't big. Had that vehicle been a van, she wouldn't have made it out of there. She would have been another Heidi Allen. End quote. Lisa Peebles went on to say she believed there were more victims of Bohr's. At that time, they had no clue of the atrocity Bohr left in his wake in Beacon, New York. But after speaking with his brother John Bohr, Lisa Peebles knew something had happened. And he also was dropping hints that there was an injured woman in Beacon that Michael found. So I And there was a disorderly conduct conviction, which we hadn't gotten the records for, for that yet. So I knew that there must have been other victims. Despite not looking into Bohr's past at all, 
Oakes argued in court that Gary's defense team was merely speculating. Quote, If I could, Your Honor, and I guess I'm struck by the speculative argument in her assertion that potentially Mr. Bohr has other victims. End quote. Well, we know that something happened in Beacon, and now we know the victim identified Michael Bohr as the man standing in her doorway before being brutally attacked. Had the prosecution looked into Bohr's criminal history when Gary's defense team explicitly requested, maybe they would have known this information. Instead, it was Lisa Peebles and her team who dredged up Bohr's substantial criminal history. After the back and forth between Oaks and Lisa Peebles, King responded, quote, As I indicated at the bench, I'm going to reserve my decision on this case because I got it Friday afternoon. On this motion, excuse me. I know you have the witness here. I'm not going to let her testify until I make a decision on the motion. I'm not going to. I believe it would be too. It's just not appropriate at this time. The fact that the motion was made on Friday the 20th does not give the court time to respond in an appropriate manner, nor did it give it time for the people to respond in writing. And the fact that she was flown in from Milwaukee, I apologize for that, but I'm not going to allow her to testify until I make a decision. End quote. Gary's defense team fired back with a response. Lisa Peebles, first of all, I have a real issue with the prosecution and their inability to be prepared for this particular witness to testify because I asked in November what investigation their office and the Oswego County Sheriff's Department did to research Mr. Bohr. And I asked specifically, what do you know about his daughters? What about him? Absolutely nothing. I was told if I wanted to do an investigation, I could do it on my own dime. Well, I did. And we have the witness here today, and he was notified of this last week, and I find it hard to believe that, Your Honor, I'm the one who was able to find this information and this victim, and somehow they weren't able to find it. And secondly, there's a lot more to this, Judge, and it's not pure speculation despite what the prosecutor thinks that I'm trying to speculate here. There's a lot more to this than what we have right now. We've scratched the surface, and it's only going to get worse. King, all the court has before it right now is one, right? Otherwise, it's speculative. I'm not trying to demean the argument. I'm simply saying, you're saying there are other victims. But I don't have before me other victims at this point, correct? Lisa Peebles, well, and I also judge... While I was trying to question Mr. Bohr on the stand about his history of violence and his background, they objected, and I wasn't able to get into that. And we probably wouldn't be in this situation because perhaps he would have told us about that and we would know. King, the fact of the matter is, I have not made the decision on the motion. I will make a decision on the motion, but I'm not going to have this person testify prior to the decision, okay? Randy Bianco Judge, King, hold on, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, but I think it was somewhat presum- very, I guess, inappropriate to bring a witness here prior to the decision being made by the court regarding whether or not the court was going to allow her to testify. Now, if the court does allow her to testify, that's fine, 
but I'm not going to be forced into letting a witness testify because you chose to fly her here Monday before I made a decision on the motion. Lisa Peebles. Well, I actually resent that by the court. King. Oh, don't resent it. It's just I'm not going to be forced to have a witness testify before I've made a decision on a very important motion. Lisa Peebles. Listen, I'm not here presuming anything. I could have predicted that they were going to block her attempt to testify, so it's not shocking to me that this is happening. Catherine Schmidt never got the chance to testify. King decided her testimony would be irrelevant. Let's break this down again. There was no jury. Schmidt had already been flown in by the defense. She was there, ready to testify and was scheduled to fly back to Wisconsin the following day. King could have let her testify that day, then decided later whether her testimony was relevant, and if not, could have struck it from the record. But it seemed like he had already made up his mind. Here's Lisa Peebles. I, it infuriated me because they did not bother to investigate Michael Bohr, and I was pleading with them to investigate Michael Bohr. And I knew there was another victim in Beacon uh, just because John Bohr dropped a hint that there was. Uh, because there was no arrest in that case uh, and there was no way for us to get any police reports. So um, that would have been incumbent on the prosecutor to be able to get those reports. And in fact, they did. Uh, they did reach out to Beacon, and they did find out that there was a victim, and those reports were then turned over to us. But that that was, you know, it, it began to snowball. I mean, the wheels were falling off with regard to Michael Bohr. I mean, he was no longer, couldn't be characterized as some gentleman with a concern, because he clearly was a violent, vicious, evil man. Before we go any further, let's take a quick break. This episode of Peebles for the People is sponsored by Himalaya Ashwagandha. 2020 has been a stressful year for me, and I've been searching for something to help me manage my stress. Finally, I can say that I have found that something in Himalaya Ashwagandha. Stress, anxiety, worry, pressures, at home, at work, kids, coworkers. There's so much that causes stress and anxiety these days. We're all just looking for that natural way to take the edge off and protect our mind and body against it. Himalaya Ashwagandha helps me navigate through my daily stresses and anxiety. Now, what is Ashwagandha? The simple answer is Ashwagandha is an herb. In ancient times, Ashwagandha was considered the king of Ayurvedic herbs, and it was used for a wide variety of conditions. In functional medicine today, we harness the power of ashwagandha primarily to help our bodies adapt to the stress of modern day life so we can feel calm and balanced. Himalaya ashwagandha is organic, non-GMO, contains no binders or fillers, and is clinically validated for safety and efficacy. Stress less and find calm with Himalaya ashwagandha. The best part? Get 20% off your first purchase on Amazon with discount code PEEBLES20. That's P-E-E-B-L-E-S-2-0. Check out the show notes for more details on this episode's sponsorship with Himalaya. 
let's jump back into Dodd's testimony. The questioning turned to Heidi working as a confidential informant for police and whether he had turned her informant file over to the defense back in 1994. Defense attorney Randy Bianco took the lead on Dodd's cross-examination. Do you know with 100% certainty whether the confidential informant card with her Heidi Allen's picture, her pedigree information, and the notes attached to that card. Do you know with certainty whether or not that was in the file, the Sheriff's Department's original file that was at the DA's office at the time Judge Fahey came to look at those documents? Do you know whether that was there? This particular document, I do not. Okay. Now I want to direct the same question to when Judge Fahey came over in March, okay? March of 1995. Was that document in that file, can you say with certainty, at the time he came to review the documents? I can say it's my belief that it was, but with to, uh, I can say it's my belief that it was, yes. According to Gary's trial attorney, Joe Fahey, he never saw those documents. This is Fahey talking to former Syracuse Post Standard reporter John O'Brien in 2016. I just, you know, have difficulty with the idea that there's a finding that uh, I got the material and, and chose not to use it. Right. I mean, if I had gotten the material, that would have been a, an entirely different trial. Uh, right. So I, in that regard, I mean, I was, I thought, pretty emphatic that uh, I hadn't received it. Uh, I knew, you know, one of the reports, I think the Morty report, yeah. But I never I never knew about the card with the thumbprint and the photo. the photo, the code name, the names that were apparently um, uh, given. I never knew about the way in which she became an informant, that there had been a uh, you know some sort of a family court case. And right. She had agreed to become an informant in order to avoid any any uh, court proceedings. Um, so I, I just, you know, I mean, I'm just a, a little bit perplexed and somewhat baffled by the, the analysis of that. Well, he sort of implies that you may have forgotten. I don't know. How, how could you ever forget well, no, I, something I, like that, right? Well, and, most people would tell you that... Uh, I have pretty close to a photographic memory right. over things. That's my, been my experience. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and so, no, I, I, I certainly didn't forget it I, because I never received it. It's something as big as that. <clears throat> I mean, that was would have been oh, huge. It, right? it, was, it was an issue that we we argued about at the beginning of the case. Right. You know, before Judge Brandt. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, it, it was obviously very significant for both Bill Walsh and I. Mm -hmm. Okay. And again, it came up, and it was dismissed by the sheriff's office and the DA. Is well, they, they told us she, she. They told us that you know it sounded like they had you know one casual encounter with her with her uncle, and uh, you know the information, whatever information she had, was was not useful, and therefore they never used her. Right. That's that's what they represented to us. We've already heard a lot about the disclosure of Heidi CI information. We know that Heidi being a confidential drug informant came up in Gary Thibodeau's pre-trial hearing in December of 1994. You may recall that Dodd brushed that idea off 
and said he had no knowledge of Heidi working with the police. It has since been established that Heidi was absolutely a confidential informant. There is documentation that confirms she was a CI, and police accidentally exposed that information to the public. Those are indisputable facts. Even if you were to concede to claims by the prosecution that she never provided any actual information, in spite of several people close to Heidi stating she actually did and had concerns about her safety, these facts were still damning enough. Despite all of this, Dodd too claimed that Heidi was never an informant. She never worked as a confidential informant. She provided confidential information, I believe, on one occasion to Anderson and on one occasion, I believe in 1991, to investigator Anderson. She never worked as a confidential uh, informant. I've been looking into this case for well over a year now, and many people who believe Gary Thibodeau was guilty of Heidi's kidnapping have no issue dismissing the fact that she was an informant for police and that her identity was exposed when she was a teenager. Like Sheriff Mo Todd. Todd also testified at the hearing in 2015. Here's O'Brien reporting on Todd's testimony from the hearing. This is John O'Brien for Syracuse.com reporting from the Oswego County Courthouse in the hearing in the Heidi Allen kidnapping case. Sheriff Rule Todd testified today that he, that he did not believe Heidi Allen was a confidential informant before she was kidnapped in 1994 when he was under sheriff. He said he let his lieutenants handle confidential informants and was not kept, up, kept updated on all of what they were doing. He said he believed it was a deputy's business card that was found in the DNW convenience store in 1992, not a card with Heidi Allen's confidential informant information on it. And he said that he knows of no confidential informant in his department whose identity was ever compromised. Uh, Todd testified that the Allen case is still open, including information about the new alleged suspects, James Steen, Roger Breckenridge, and, and Michael Bohr. He said, quote, that case will always be open until I bring her home. What Todd said on the stand was false. There is documentation proving that Heidi was an informant and that her informant card was dropped in the parking lot of the DNW. So despite what he said on the stand, the identity of a teenage drug informant had been exposed. And on that note, there was someone who may have known about Heidi's informant card being dropped. His name was Michael Bohr. Here is Lisa Peebles arguing in front of the appellate division's fourth department. Michael Bohr revealed during the hearing a fact that nobody, including the prosecution, knew before he testified. He revealed that Heidi Allen's informant information was dropped in the parking lot and found by Christine Duell. After he testified at the hearing in 2015, the prosecution went and looked, and he was right. And it was the first time they discovered this so-called 911 punch card, and it did in fact reveal. And he testified that he knew the day she found the information in the parking lot, he knew about it. And I think that that's an important point to make when you're talking about all the other evidence that points to Michael Bohr. The following is an excerpt from Bohr's testimony. Lisa Peebles, Mr. Bohr, did you have any knowledge regarding Heidi Allen as a confidential informant? Bohr, 
Not at all until the day it was found. Lisa Peebles. What was found? Bore. It was announced that Christine, Matt's wife, had found... It was brought to my attention that an ID card was found on the parking lot. This was like 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning. I think it was Wednesday the following, after Easter Sunday, and... King, I'm going to strike that answer as being based completely on hearsay. Moody, Judge, I object. King, you can't continue in that line, sir. Hold on. This needs to be addressed. King just flat out prevented Bohr from explaining how he found out about Heidi's secret identity being exposed. No one objected to what Bohr said until King stepped in. It seemed like he was telling the prosecution to object. Let me make this clear. It is unusual for a judge to make a ruling like that without anyone objecting. To put it simply, the judge's role in the courtroom is similar to the referee's role on the basketball court. The judge is responsible for presiding over the hearing from a neutral point of view and rule on any evidentiary issues or objections brought by either side. In this case, though, King was also the one who would ultimately decide whether Gary would get a new trial. Regardless, it is not the judge's position to object. That is the attorney's responsibility. But here, King acted more like another prosecutor and less like the neutral party presiding over the hearing. It was almost like King didn't want Bohr to offer any information that could help Gary's case. Okay, let's jump back in where we left off. Lisa Peebles, Mr. Bohr, did you ever see the card that you're talking about? Bohr, no. Lisa Peebles, but you knew about it? Bohr, it was brought to my attention and I heard it on the TV at 12. Lisa Peebles, at 12? Bohr, yes, more to be announced at 5, but at 5 o'clock, no mention of it. Lisa Peebles, Mr. Bohr, when was that? Bohr, not long after Heidi disappeared. Moody, objection, judge. Could we have a basis of time or knowledge on this? King, Honestly, anything regarding the CI status is completely based on hearsay. The court's disregarding it. No first-hand knowledge. King said Bohr's testimony about how he found out Heidi's identity had been exposed was based on hearsay. But how he found out wasn't the point. The point was Bohr knew her identity had been exposed, and that point was corroborated during his testimony. The fact that Christine Duell was the person who found the sensitive information was not known by anyone. And as we heard Lisa Peebles say, after pulling the 911 punch cards, it was confirmed that Bohr was right. But how did Bohr know Duell was the one who found the index card? Despite what he said, it was never in the news. Lisa Peebles made sure to follow up on this line of questioning. Lisa Peebles, did you tell anybody else about what you, what you learned about the card that you mentioned before? Bohr, well, once it was on the news at 12 o'clock, a lot of people were talking about it, me included. Lisa Peebles, when was it on the news, sir? Bohr, 
Only once. Lisa Peebles. And when was that? Bore. The day that Christine turned it in. That morning. And at 12 o'clock, they said they were going to have more at 5. And at 5 o'clock, they never talked about it. Lisa Peebles. And was that in 1991? King. 1994. Lisa Peebles. No, 1991. Bore. 94. Lisa Peebles. 91 is when the card was found. Moody. Objection, Judge. How does he know? We've established his basis of knowledge and what he was saying. He said it was, if I'm not mistaken, King. If I'm mistaken, I apologize. I thought Miss Peebles misspoke. Miss Peebles asked the question again. Lisa Peebles. Mr. Bohr, when you learned about the information from the card, Christine told you about that. Is that, that's what you're saying? Christine Duell told you about the card? Moody. Objection. I don't believe that's what he said. Lisa Peebles. That is what he said. King. I did not allow that answer because it was based on hearsay. Mr. Bohr is indicating he learned about it on the news at noon. Bohr. I didn't say I heard it from Christine at all. King. Mr. Bohr, we dealt with that, sir. Lisa Peebles. Okay, well, you said it was on the news. I'm trying to pinpoint when it was on the news. It was the day they found the card, you said, right? Bohr. Yes. The card was discovered in 1991, and Bohr was somehow the only person in that courtroom who knew Duel was the person who recovered it. I want to stress this again. The discovery of Heidi's index card was not in the news in 1991 or 1994, and Bohr knew that. Here he is with O'Brien before the hearing, acknowledging that he didn't get that information from the news. I mean, that's been rumored for years, right? That she was an informant. In fact, she was an informant. Um, was she? Yeah. For yeah. sure. For sure, I've seen the reports. Okay. She was absolutely that was for weird sure. To suddenly come up with that, that ID card. In the parking lot. In the parking lot. Days oh, you later. saw that. Okay. Well, it was uh, in the news. Okay. Well, yeah. It, look, yeah. New Haven's a small town. Yeah. Anything that happened, everybody found out about it. So, and the more I think about it, more and more stuff's coming back to me. I don't me. think that was in the news, though. The, 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 it, the, it may have been. Oh, okay, I don't remember that. Yeah, it may have been. Right. No, I don't think I don't think that. I don't think it was. I don't think that uh, was. It didn't come up in the trial, I know. And if it was in the news, it would have come up in the trial. Because that's such a weird and piece it of... it didn't come up in the trial. It did not. I went through and read right. the transcript. Because the, the sheriffs were denying it. Right. And they can't because deny they, it if they got a card that says she's a informant. So I, I'm wondering I how you... That, I, I, I wonder if that was in the stuff that you had. That, that, I mean, how do you know that detail, I wonder? Is that from going through police... How did you know that about finding the car? Just word of mouth, maybe? Yeah, town guy. Okay. Town okay. During his testimony, Bohr also divulged that he told people in the New Haven community about the discovery of Heidi's sensitive information. Knowing that Heidi was an informant for police provides a very clear motive for Bohr to kidnap and murder her. No one can dispute the fact that Bohr was deeply involved in the drug world. So what makes more sense? That Gary Thibodeau kidnapped and killed Heidi for no reason? 
Do you have an answer to why the Thibodeaux would have, or Gary Thibodeau specifically, yeah. would have done this? And I don't have a clear answer as to why. Um, you know, unfortunately, to look into the mind of somebody who would commit this kind of crime, it's unclear. There's no logical reason that's sufficient as to why they would commit this. But if there's evidence or information that would point to his innocence, I'm more than willing to look at it, reconsider the new evidence if it points in a different direction. Or that Heidi was kidnapped and killed because police exposed her identity as an undercover informant and someone like Bohr found out. Gary Thibodeau's attorneys believe Allen may have been kidnapped as a result of her status as a confidential drug informant being compromised. In court last week, former deputies described a meeting with Allen about becoming a confidential informant regarding drug activity around the town of New Haven. Her photo ID card with her information and code name was later dropped by the deputy working with her. It was found by her co-worker in the parking lot of the D&W convenience store where she worked. Her information was later returned to the sheriff's department, but the deputy testified he never let Allen or the family know her identity may have been compromised. Judge King even conceded to the fact that Heidi was a confidential drug informant for the police. The hearing adjourned in April of 2015. During the adjournment, Gary's defense team asked to call more witnesses who could testify about Heidi's secret involvement with police. King denied that request in November of 2015. Quote, It is undisputed Miss Allen was an informant prior to her disappearance, and any tangential information gleaned from a supposed family court proceeding is irrelevant. Defendant's request to call Rhonda Burr, a former co-worker of Miss Allen's, is denied as her testimony is irrelevant and immaterial. It has already been established at the hearing that Ms. Allen was a confidential informant. End quote. King denied every request made by the defense, including calling Catherine Schmidt to testify, admitting some of Bohr's documents pertaining to his investigation into Heidi's kidnapping, calling Heidi's cousin, Missy Searles, to testify, and admitting FBI agent Clint Van Zant's 1994 profile of the kidnapper. This is King's reasoning for denying Van Zant's profile. Quote, Regarding defendant's request to introduce the FBI profile report, or, in the alternative, testimony from agent Van Zant, the court denies that request, as the proffered testimony is speculative and irrelevant. End quote. Over and over again, Gary's defense team was prevented from presenting a case that could result in him receiving a new trial. I'm still unsure how the FBI profile of Heidi's kidnapper is irrelevant. The profile clearly fits Michael Bohr, and it corroborates what Tyler Hayes and Danielle Babcock testified to. As for Heidi's cousin Missy, the defense tried calling her because Heidi's bracelet mysteriously ended up in Missy's mailbox in an unaddressed envelope years after the kidnapping. Shortly after Allen disappeared in 1994, Gary Thibodeau's attorney says Searles talked about the bracelet with her sister while Michael Bohr was present. In the filing, Thibodeau's attorney says Searles, quote, discovered a white envelope containing this bracelet in her mailbox some 10 years after Allen was abducted.
Thibodeau's attorney says Searles contacted her office after reading a court filing that had excerpts from Michael Bohr's handwritten notes on the case. Bohr said he made the notes after meeting with a psychic in them. He says the psychic told him three men and a woman were involved in Heidi's death. In rambling notes full of spelling and grammatical errors, Bohr said, quote, Heidi hide a bracelet behind the seat of the vehicle real good, and later said, Heidi hid something wherever she was held and everybody in her family would know it was hers. The prosecution had no objection to having Missy testify at the hearing. Still, King denied that request because, quote, The court sees no evidentiary purpose for this testimony, as it has not been established that this bracelet was in fact the bracelet belonging to Ms. Allen. End quote. Well, the bracelet had Heidi's name engraved on one side and Love Missy on the other. And Searles signed an affidavit stating that it was Heidi's bracelet. And most significantly, the prosecution even conceded that her testimony would be relevant. Missy Searles' testimony was blocked solely by King. After the adjournment, all Gary could do was wait for King's decision. But based on how the hearing played out, Gary and his defense team didn't have much hope. Months went by before finally, on March 2, 2016, King made his decision. Quote, Therefore, the defendant's request that his conviction be vacated based upon such newly discovered evidence is denied. End quote. Oaks, of course, took King's decision as validation that there was no doubt Gary was guilty of Heidi's kidnapping and presumed murder. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. My name is Greg Oaks. I'm the district attorney for Oswego County. Your Honors, Judge King correctly decided the 440 motion that was before the court based on the two main arguments that were presented. First, the court concluded that there was not newly discovered evidence that would likely change the outcome of the trial if it was presented to the jury. Secondly, the court properly concluded that there was, in fact, no Brady violation. But this decision did not come as a huge surprise to Lisa Peebles. She could see this coming from the start of the hearing. I was very discouraged and very angry, and it just, the more we got shut down, the more I was determined to keep digging things up because uh, it really did light a fire under me because uh, it was, the writing was kind of on the wall. We knew what was happening. We knew which way this was going. It wasn't going to matter what we put forth in front of the court. They were just waiting to shut the thing down uh, to deny Gary a new trial. So I knew we had to lay a good foundation, a good record for an appellate court. And that's really what I was trying to do because I knew we were dead in the water at that level. It was just a question of what could we put out there so that we could make it and be successful at the next level. In reading King's decision over and over again, I was shocked by his clear refusal to consider any information that would point to anyone other than Gary Thibodeau as the kidnapper. But what was clearly the most disingenuous part of his ruling was this. Quote, The court finds that as Ms. Allen was not a confidential informant for the Oswego County Sheriff's Office, there was no Brady material to turn over. 
end quote. It is undeniable that Heidi was signed up as a confidential informant for police when she was a teenager. Aside from the file with reports written by the sheriffs detailing Heidi's role as an informant, aside from the code name she was given by the sheriffs, aside from Heidi's aunt Martha Sturtz admitting to me that Heidi was an informant, King himself had already declared Heidi was a confidential drug informant. The rest of King's decision was just a laundry list of what he decided made each witness whose testimony implicated Roger Breckenridge, Michael Bohr, or James Steen, not credible. Like the prosecution, King decided that Breckenridge, Steen, and Bohr were telling the truth when they denied involvement in Heidi's kidnapping. For Oaks, this was a victory. The elected DA of Oswego County said he believes that Gary was responsible. We begin tonight with an NBC3 exclusive. Oaks was interviewed by local television reporter Matt Mulcahy. What do you think Gary Thibodeau did then that morning? Yeah, I think Gary Thibodeau was at the DNW store and working with another person helped abduct Heidi Allen and then took her back to either his home or another location. And again, it's unclear exactly what happened to her. Um, he made statements to the other inmates in the jail indicating that he had killed her. Um, suggesting what had happened to her with her demise. Um, but again, I don't know exactly what the particulars were, but I do believe he's responsible for her death. I mentioned the double standard in the last episode, but I want this to be clear. Oaks had no problem believing jailhouse informants who claimed Gary made admissions in 1994. No one disputed that the story they told police had factual errors. Yet when 13 witnesses, with no criminal records and nothing to gain, testified with corroborating accounts of admissions from Bohr, Steen, or Breckenridge, well, then it's hearsay, and they don't have credible information. And the fact of the matter is, no one, no one has ever been able to put Gary Thibodeau at the scene of the crime. During his victory lap, Oaks made sure to sing former prosecutor Donald Dodd's praises. And over the last three years, with absolutely no proof, Attorney Lisa Peebles has repeatedly questioned the integrity of the District Attorney's Office and the Oswego County Sheriff's Office. More specifically, she directly accused and questioned the honesty of former District Attorney Donald H. Dodd accusing him of committing a major ethical violation. Today's decision rightfully vindicates Donald Dodd and the District Attorney's Office. On a personal note, I had the honor of working with Donald Dodd as an Assistant District Attorney for over 10 years. In many ways, he is one of the key people who taught me how to do my job as a prosecutor. He was one of my first mentors here at the district attorney's office. And more times than I can count, I heard him say, we chase the truth. Our job is to do the right thing. Our job as an attorney, as a prosecutor, is to obtain justice, nothing more. Donald Dodd is just a fundamentally decent person. He is ethical. He is honest. 
I don't think the man would ever know how to lie or how to cheat. And quite frankly, I've been offended by the smear campaign from the defense over the past three years, making accusations of major ethical breaches without any foundation or any support. I'm glad that Judge King was able to see through that smear campaign and realize that all the Brady material had been turned over. We've already heard from a prosecutor who worked with Dodd and would disagree with Oak's assessment. And we have statements from Brittany Link, who was 13 at the time, and said Dodd coerced her into testifying falsely against Gary. Even former county court judge Jack Brandt would disagree with Oaks. Brandt spoke with O'Brien in 2017. It's important to know, on top of handling Gary's preliminary hearing in 1994, Brandt presided over many cases that Dodd prosecuted. What about Dodd? Nah, I would not say that Mr. Dodd had the same reputation. Okay. Um, there were many times when we argued about, uh, in fact, I think it, I think I, I testified to this in front of Judge King, mm. that there were many times that he and I uh, would go, or he'd take the position that the material was not exculpatory, it was rosario material, and he didn't have to turn it over until after the uh, opening uh, arguments by councilman trial, and uh, there were many, many cases that uh, I would find that he'd be uh, trying to hold, that he would hold stuff back on the grounds that, on the claim that it was Rosario and there'd be literally banker's boxes full of materials that uh, his intention was to turn it over um, just before the trial would start. And my comment then was, I'm not going to force a lawyer to look at two full banker boxes of stuff um, mm. in the break between the opening statements and the uh, and the production of evidence, and I'm not going to send the jury home, you know, after they've been sworn to sit uh, for a day to let the lawyer look at it. So I said, you need to turn this stuff over. Like, for example, if we if we were in jury selection and uh, we were going to have the testimony start on a Monday, I would direct them to turn it over, you know, at least, at least um, uh, by... Uh, before the weekend commenced to give the lawyer an opportunity to review the things. And as it turned out, there were many things in there that um, he called uh, Rosario material that, in my opinion, was clearly exculpatory uh, material or Brady material that should have been delivered far before that because the obligation is when you discover it, not when you feel like turning it over. In the interview, Brandt cited two specific cases that could constitute prosecutorial misconduct by Dodd. Oh, and those jailhouse informants who Dodd used to help convict Gary? Well, one of them told O'Brien he was told exactly what to say during his testimony. So who was telling you, they were telling you what to say? Uh, well, not pretty much. They were, you know, trying to just get me to say he told me he did it. And I said, you know, that's never what we said. You know, I just wow. told him pretty much. Again, you're going back a while ago. 20 years. Know. Yeah, it's been 20 years. So who was telling you that? Who was talking to you about it? The, the DA or the cops? Uh, you know, pretty much back. I think it was just, uh, might have been the DA. 
The DA would have been, um, remember his name? It would have been Donald Dodd, I think. Skinny guy. Yeah. Don't remember. So, anything else that they tried to say you said about him, how he killed her for drugs and there was a, all that, that stuff? That never could, should have come out of me. You know, my testimony, it should never be there. I never mentioned any part of that. Despite King's decision, Gary's defense team wasn't done fighting. Lisa Peebles was not ready to accept such an egregious miscarriage of justice. She appealed King's decision. The lower court's denial of Gary Thibodeau's 440 motion was based on numerous legal and factual errors, which only served to perpetuate this miscarriage of justice. And on behalf of Gary Thibodeau, I respectfully ask this court to vacate his conviction. Thank you. But that would take more time. And for Gary, though his hopes had not yet been completely lost, time was of the essence. Well, since I met Lisa and seen her in action, I like I got an angel in the scene on my side. Yeah. I feel good about it except for my health. I don't yeah. want to die, but I can feel it that I ain't got a whole lot of time left. Yeah. Okay. But I'm not wishing and wanting and begging like I was before. Okay, you're you're hoping to live now. Well, I mean, I, I know I've only got a couple of years, but, yeah. How do you know you only have a couple of years? Did the doctor tell you that, or what, what do you just, how do you know? I, I've been driving this vehicle for 62 years. I, I, I know it's just about done. It's usually just about up. i got one lung. I can't even walk up a flight of stairs. I've got so many issues. I'm starting to get chest pain and stuff from all this walking and stand. All the stress these people put me through is unbelievable. Yeah. So you, There's you, one person in the system that I've been in, and I've been to many, that operates the way these people do. All right, so you must be worried that um, if you're going to get out, that it's before you pass on. I mean, right? I mean, this could drag on for a couple of years, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't expect to see a dime. If it ever got to that point. Oh, it died. Okay. Yeah. You've, you've thought about that down the road? I'm, having a, I'm having a will made up. You what? I'm having a will made up uh, just okay. in case. And I want this thing to, I want to be found innocent. Not just not guilty bullshit. Yeah. I was innocent before it started. I'm innocent now. The appeal would bring King's decision in front of a panel of judges. On that panel was Judge John Centra who saw through the disingenuous arguments made by the prosecution. But would the other justices be able to see through the smoke too? Find out on the next episode of Peebles for the People. Hey, Peoples for the People fans. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and rate. And be sure to tune in next week for our season finale. 
you'll get to hear original audio from Gary Thibodeau's appeals. Despite feeling his health deteriorate more and more every day, Gary Thibodeau never stopped fighting for justice. You're not going to want to miss this one. Tune in next Monday, right here on the Peebles for the People podcast.